This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think early on having a discussion and introducing the concept of radical cystectomy in these patients that you're worried about, I think that's pretty important. You know, I think kind of emphasizing a lot of the quality of life data that is now emerging, suggesting that patients do go on to live healthy, fulfilling lives after cystectomy. And it is at this point in time in 2022, the only real curative option after BCG fails. So I think introducing that idea early on is important. What I like about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is you tend to develop relationships with patients as they go through multiple lines of therapy, et cetera. So at least putting that sort of on the back table, so to speak, as you go through the different bladder preserving options. But my typical approach is BCG. If BCG is not working, then typically clinical trials. And if they're well, cystectomy discussion versus clinical trials and based off how worried I am about that patient and if they're not eligible or, or not excited about the clinical trial options that are available to them, then, you know, sort of our default option has also been the gemcitabine docetaxel combination as well. And I, I think I share both of your feelings that although it does seem promising, the data, the evidence is pretty weak and retrospective to support it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Eugene Piatsek from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Timothy Clinton from Brigham and Women's. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Excited to be here. Great to see you both. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure and excited. You know, I've had the good fortune of spending time as a trainee with both uh, Eugene and Tim, and we and we kind of go back and share fond memories and war stories from fellowship at Memorial and residence at UT Southwestern. Eugene has now converted to the other side as an attending, but thrilled to have you on today. And we're going to talk about BCG refractory muscle-based bladder cancer. I was going to say, I have had the distinct pleasure of training under both of you. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's like a, like a double whammy, Tim. Right. <laughs> no wonder you're not even an assistant professor yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is a topic that, you know, I, I think it can be confusing. In my experience as a, you know, academic urologist, a lot of mismanagement can take place for this group of patients. But maybe let's just start out with some definitions. And now when you're thinking about BCG, unresponsive bladder cancer, can you kind of just walk us through the lexicon of pertinent terminology? Sure, I can start. I think, you know, BCG unresponsive disease has been a difficult one to characterize. And, and I think the best definition these days and the most widely accepted has been defined by the FDA in 2018 with their BCG unresponsive criteria for clinical trial design. And so they've really defined this as folks who have had adequate BCG, which includes five of six induction courses and two of three maintenance doses of BCG or five of six uh, induction BCG doses, as well as uh, I believe two of six of a second induction course as well. If they've undergone adequate BCG and have persistent or recurrent CIS within 12 months, 
recurrent high-grade TA or T1 within six months of adequate BCG, or T1 at the first evaluation, and this is what we now define as BCG unresponsive disease. So when you say T1 at the first evaluation, so you know, patient comes in, T1 high grade, you do your resection, you do your repeat resection, they don't have any pressing indications for a upfront early timely cystectomy, you do induction BCG, and then you take a look in their bladder and there's T1 high grade recurrence. So how would you define that patient? Yeah, I think this, this is exactly what we're talking about as far as unresponsive disease. So now, you know, this is somebody that I'm, I'm worried about. You know, they had their first induction course of BCG. You know, you're starting to talk about invasive disease that's still present. Now I'm starting to talk about early cystectomy, possible alternative therapies at this point. Yeah. And so technically, per the FDA, does this patient have... BCG, unresponsive disease. They've just received their induction course, not a five plus two. Oh, you're saying just after the, the very first induction here. Yeah. Oh, right, right. So yeah, exactly. So first evaluation after adequate BCG for T1, right? So this is somebody, but I still am worried about it, right? They still have T1 disease. Now we're looking at, is this someone who's still going to potentially respond to a second induction course or not? Yeah. And and I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, you know, to me, the FDA definition is interesting in some ways. You know, it's these patients that you really worry about that they get their induction course and they've got persistent or, you know, worrisome disease, multifocal T1 high grade or diffuse carcinoma in situ. I feel like in my mind, I kind of think them as high, ultra high risk players that, you know, should be eligible, say, for like a clinical trial. Or, or something a little bit more involved. I mean, you know, this patient specifically, I would counsel them towards like a cystectomy. But Eugene, what do you think? I mean, is that patient unresponsive per the FDA definitions? Yeah, I mean, I, they, per the FDA definitions and for clinical trial purposes, they certainly do fall into that category of BCG unresponsive disease, just an induction course only, and then having on your first three-month assessment high-grade T1 that would meet the criteria I agree with the both view. This is definitely a concerning situation that we run into. But I think, you know, a lot of us at academic centers, you know, I think the FDA criteria provides a very good framework and sort of tries to develop this more homogeneous cohort for which we could do clinical trials. But, you know, I think we also need to be mindful that, you know, the BCG unresponsive criteria is really just based off of expert opinion. It wasn't super data driven. There's been some post hoc analyses, you know, to sort of validate it. But, you know, you would think you know, we've been using BCG since 1976 or so. There's, you know, over 40 years of data. I think it would have been nice if, you know, we would have got together, pooled our data sets and sort of come up with a, a more, you know, sort of evidence-based definition. But I think you know, the framework that we have now is is helpful and, you know, we're not going to go back. We're going to go forward. You know, pembrolizumab's FDA approved. There's a handful of other agents that I'm sure we're going to talk about that will likely get FDA approved. And so, you know, I think when you're faced with that patient in clinic, though, you have to think, you know, where was the initial treatment? Where were the TURBTs performed? Because there's tremendous variability and the BCG unresponsive criteria for clinical trials doesn't factor in that initial tumor management. 
whether or not a restaging to URBT was actually performed or not. And I think that's very relevant when you're in that three-month assessment. I think it's hard to tell, is this biologically resistant disease or was this patient that just had you know, disease that went unresected because they didn't have a restaging to URBT locally. And now you're, you know, seeing this patient post BCG. I'm still worried about that patient, right? Because as Tim had mentioned, these are early invasive changes and this can be a very biologically aggressive tumor. But, you know, it's sort of what we see in clinical practice and what the clinical trial criteria are may not necessarily always merge. Totally. And I think this is a role for the enhanced cystoscopies, whether it's enhanced cystoscopy in the office or the blue light to URBT at the time of your, your repeat resection here, you know, I think that plays a role too. You know, the initial management, was this a blue light or enhanced cystoscopy at the time of the TURBT? Certainly if you're doing it now post-BCG, I think this all helps you just sort of make sure that you've had a thorough analysis and all tumor was resected. Yeah. So you know, we've kind of jumped on into it and I kind of had a outline and okay. <laughs> and I, I think that this is great. So we've, we've covered some, some definitions. BCG intolerance, is this something that you guys encounter? I get calls from, from our infusion center that, you know, patient X was only able to hold their BCG for like 10 minutes and they're having significant frequency and urgency, bladder spasms. Is this, is this a common clinical scenario? Or actually, how do you tell, what do you tell your patients that are about to start their first course of BCG? What's the probability that this is going to work? And then what does kind of BCG look like? Sure. I think, you know, when I'm talking to folks who've had their initial TURBT, and I think you had your initial podcast with Dr. Sam Chang there, who did a really nice job of discussing what constitutes an adequate evaluation and adequate transurethral resection of a bladder tumor. Because I think that's probably the most important thing as we've alluded to already. After that, you know, now they have some amount of high risk or intermediate risk, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and you're discussing the options for BCG. And I tell them that we're going to start with an induction course of BCG, which will be given once a week for six weeks, followed by a rest period and then an evaluation, uh, usually about 12 weeks after the initial resection. And that BCG is a medication here that's instilled into the bladder, and it's truly an immunostimulatory agent here. And so because of that, your body has a systemic immune response as well and can actually induce changes within the bladder, but also some systemic side effects as well. I tell a lot of folks that I expect some amount of dysuria, urinary frequency, urgency shortly after the administration. And there can even be flu-like symptoms for about 48 to 72 hours after the administration of BCG. But in general, these are self-limiting and, and should resolve. Additionally, these, these side effects can sometimes be a little bit worse after the first couple of doses for BCG. So it'll get a little bit worse during the treatment while they're undergoing treatment with BCG. But then after that, we'll uh, assess their bladder. You know, there are certainly some folks who can't tolerate BCG, right? I think you're mentioning you, someone gets the BCG and it's just too painful or the side effects are too much and they can't tolerate further doses despite local control. Then these are the folks who you can subsequently deem BCG intolerant. Okay. And Eugene, when they say, Doc, what's the chance that this is going to work for me? You know, how, how do you kind of have that conversation? And maybe we could start out with patients that have papillary high-grade tumors and then patients that have CIS and then combination patients. And you've done their 
most recent TURBT and feel like you've you know cleaned them out? Yeah. So I think as you sort of alluded to, I, I, I do sort of give like a stage specific or disease specific sort of estimate based off, you know, the, the data, at least the way that I interpret it. So someone who has say high grade T1, you know, multifocal disease with diffuse CIS, like those patients, I sort of counsel and emphasize that there's a little bit of concern depending on whether or not you're worried about potential clinical understaging, potentially, even if you're doing it yourself, et cetera. You know, those patients all counsel like the chance that they would derive clinical benefit from BCG may be as low as 50% sometimes. And, you know, certainly that's an opportunity for clinical trials of BCG plus, you know, additional agent, maybe like an immune checkpoint inhibitor in that case, if they have early invasive changes, et cetera. But for a patient with papillary high-grade TA only disease, you know, those patients' chances of response, I typically quote them as at least 80% or so. And those that don't initially respond may be able to be rechallenged with a second induction course or, again, a clinical trial opportunity. So those patients may still derive clinical benefit from BCG that can be long-lasting. I do counsel patients, though, that even if they have an initial response, even with maintenance BCG, there's still a chance that they could recur. Typically, I say somewhere around 20 to 30% chance within the first few years. Again, I sort of try to individualize it a little bit more. Patients with multifocal disease, even if it's high-grade TA, I worry more about those patients with larger tumor burden overall, even if you know they're fully resected using enhanced cystoscopy techniques, et cetera, compared to a patient with you know, a small solitary tumor, I think kind of risk stratified my estimates to them. Yeah, that sounds about spot on or consistent with what I do. You know, if it's kind of at the favorable and, you know, solitary TA, high grade, less than three centimeters kind of in that 80% range, you know, now you're getting on the other end of the spectrum, T1 high grade. I mean, usually if they have LVI, I'm super worried, but if it's, you know, T1 high grade and not chock full, unresectable, early cystectomy candidate, closer to about 50%. A couple of questions. So both in terms of tolerance of BCG, maintenance regimens, and our ongoing BCG shortages, that's certainly something we're affected by. And we get like a weekly email and it's like, oh my gosh, we're like, we're about to like run out of BCG. First question on that first counseling session, how are you advising your patients in terms of duration of maintenance BCG? And then do you ever use dose reductions? And what are your kind of opinions on that? I think you're exactly right. We're all plagued by this BCG shortage right now, which has really become terrible as far as patient expectations uh, with regards, to, especially to maintenance BCG. Here, we're certainly keeping a list of everybody who's eligible for BCG treatments, whether it's induction or maintenance, and priorities given to those who, have, who need induction courses. Uh, and certainly, if you have T1 or CIS disease, these men and women are at the top of the list for that induction course. I tell everybody that that's the most important course of the treatment. And maintenance, if we have extra available, will be given. And again, preference is given for those for the first maintenance course and the second maintenance course. But it really is dependent on sort of what our shipment is for the month there. And we've been doing one-third dose reductions based on a couple of different studies. And I think MD Anderson and Ashish Kamat's group have done a nice job of showing the efficacy of one-third doses as well. Eugene, how long is a patient in your practice typically going to get maintenance BCG? So I typically give or try to give at least one year of SWOG 
protocol maintenance BCG, you know, three, six, and 12 months. And then, you know, depending on the availability of BCG at that point in time, we may go, you know, to try to go for the full three years. But I think as Tim had said, it's, it's more important to prioritize the induction. And we typically will prioritize full strength induction course BCG rather than uh, one third dosing with the caveat that some of my partners with discussions with their patients often will not give maintenance BCG. And I think, you know, if you go back to the original studies of that and look at that, you know, not everyone necessarily derives clinical benefit from the maintenance BCG. You know, there's probably about a 25% benefit in recurrence-free survival, potentially a benefit for progression-free survival, but at least the SWOG clinical trial used that compositive endpoint of disease worsening. So I think, Ideally, patients will receive maintenance BCG, and it's supported by the guidelines. But I think if you have a limited supply of BCG, that should definitely be allocated for induction courses. And if I could go off script just for one second and uh, put a plug for an upcoming ECOG study, the BRIDGE trial, that's going to be randomizing patients with newly diagnosed anomalous invasive disease, high-grade disease, between BCG versus gemcitabine and docetaxel. And I think as a community, that's going to be such a critical study to support, such an important trial to support as a bladder cancer community, since, you know, BCG has been the first line option for over 40 years. Gemdosi, as we'll probably discuss later on, has some promising data, but this is an ECOG-led study by Max Gates at Hopkins that should hopefully be opening within the next few months. Yeah, couldn't be more excited. And honestly, you know, our kind of GU oncology consensus here is, you know, if we get to dire straits with BCG, we're going to shift to Gemdosi kind of first line. And yeah, familiar with the trial. I think it's great. It's an awesome trial. It's a big trial. It's an ambitious trial. But I do think Gemcitabindosi-Taxel has been plagued by lower quality evidence, which is why it's not a part of our kind of FDA-approved armamentarium in the BCG refractory space. Um, and, and of course, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that. Fantastic. So, you know, I think I've got a good sense of how you counsel patients on what your likelihood is of responding and, you know, what BCG looks like. You know, a number that kind of stuck out in my head for the three-year maintenance program, you know, the, the kind of SWOG trial is that only about 20% of people actually completed that. Now, whether that's they lost interest or, you know, it was kind of persistent side effects, it does seem that there's, you know, kind of two camps like there are for so many things. People that do just fine with BCG, no issues, no problems. And then the other end of the spectrum are going to be the people that, you know, they really have the fatigue, the systemic symptoms, the pelvic pain, discomfort. One of the things that I've started doing is actually for all my female patients that are getting BCG is starting them on vaginal estrogen. And I feel like their kind of vestibulodynia and discomfort has improved. I think that might be something, you know, that could be beneficial. And then I've also had a handful of patients with extreme, what I would consider BCG cystitis. At their three-month or six-month cystos, their bladders just look terrible. I'm super worried that they're chock full of tumor, resect them, and it's all cystitis. And for some of these patients, I've actually been, you know, once I've confirmed that there's no recurrence, having them receive hyperbaric oxygen therapy. But just kind of a couple of things that I've been doing. Any opinions or have you seen any of these patients where you look in their bladders and they just look inflamed, angry, erythematous, you know, telling jectasias everywhere? 
I've you know it's really interesting what BCG can do. I've I actually had a patient recently who had he was getting treated for a, another secondary malignancy, but had a PET scan and his prostate lit up, which had BCG granulomas throughout it on um, biopsy. I've had patients with epididymal orchitis from the BCG, right? So it it just is so inflammatory sometimes. And uh, you're exactly right. I mean, the bladder itself can get really cystitis and everything else. And I think, you know, you have to utilize some other therapies to try and get them through the BCG therapy or just switch course to a different treatment option. Even more reason to support the bridge trial. <laughs> Toxicity, BCG shortage, et cetera. No, I mean, the, um, are you guys using any, we rarely get to the maintenance courses for these guys. I, I mean, we're running through our BCG for induction courses and very rarely getting enough doses for maintenance these days. And I, I think talking to other folks, in, at least in academics and certainly in the community, very few people are doing maintenance doses due to the shortage. Yeah, our, our maintenance literally earlier this month got axed. We were at full dose induction, one third maintenance for up to a year. They had to have high grade, high risk per AUA guidelines. Now it's just induction and it's tough. I mean, the patients don't like it and I, I don't like it. Nobody likes it. And I've actually gone to some gemcitabine docetaxel maintenance, which is a little atypical, but <laughs> no, we started doing the same I mean, here. You can judge. <laughs> no, no, we'll we're, we're doing it there. too. Go ahead and judge. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's like something seems better than nothing. All right. So now let's just jump into that three-month cysto. Let's kind of walk through some clinical scenarios. So you, you look in the bladder and it's erythematous and they've got a history of CIS. First things first, you get a cytology and it's positive. What's your next kind of step in this scenario? Office biopsy, OR biopsy, is the cytology enough? So cysto, seeing erythematous lesions concerning for possible CIS versus, you know, BCG cystitis and the cytology is positive. Yeah. I personally will take that patient to the operating room and under sedation, at least do biopsies and folds rate. I am... Um, a bit of a believer that I think there is a therapeutic benefit from trying to at least foldrate some of the CIS. And I, I do, especially areas where, you know, it looks like there could be some early papillary changes. I will formally resect those areas safely, at least. And then once in a while, you'll see that there is some laminar appropriate involvement. Usually it's focal and it's a small amount, but I think that's important to know because, you know, that is a, a concerning feature. If the cytology comes back negative, unless I'm very worried about the patient, I don't often take biopsies. I would probably just proceed with Roundup Maintenance BCG and then reassess at six months. You know, the concerning aspect of that is... We know that many patients based off the SWOG maintenance clinical trial data will convert to a complete response, but not everyone will. And then they would, by definition at that point, meet the definition for BCG on responsive disease, having received induction plus maintenance. And the standard of care in 2022 is still radical cystectomy. So, you know, it's, it is unclear to me whether those patients would have done better if they would have received, you know, a full in second induction course of BCG. And we do have a clinical trial here where we're combining BCG with intravesical gemcitabine for patients who you would typically retreat with BCG, you know, trying something a little bit different and hopefully getting better results. 
Yeah, perfect, Eugene. I mean, that, that's pretty similar for me. You know, if I take a look and it's not overly concerning, I'll tell the patient, listen, if the cytology is positive, you know, we're going to do a biopsy. If the cytology is negative, we'll continue on with BCG. If the cytology is positive, you know, that patient, depending on their comorbidities, maybe I'll just kind of put that out there. We'll either get an office biopsy or preferably an operative TURBT. So if it shows carcinoma in situ at that biopsy or operative resection fulguration, how are you going to manage that patient? So three months cysto, biopsy proven carcinoma in situ after induction BCG. For me, I, my standard of care option would be actually a full induction course, like a second induction course of BCG. And as I sort of alluded to, we, we have a clinical trial option as well as BCG plus alternating doses of intravesical gemcitabine because, you know, although some patients, the SWOG maintenance randomized data would suggest that about 50% of patients would convert from a non-responder with CIS to a uh, complete response at their six-month assessment, you know, 50%, that's essentially a coin toss more or less. So, you know, hoping that either that full six weeks of BCG or that clinical trial, as I alluded to, and I think there's other clinical trials that will probably be that are assessing BCG plus immune checkpoint blockade, et cetera, um, may see if, you know, there, there may be better efficacy with a combination. Although I, personally, we'll talk about this in a bit. I, I always have a little bit of concerns about the toxicity for an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Yeah. So what if their cytology is positive and you don't biopsy prove any persistent cancer? Does it take a little while for the cytology to kind of seroconvert? Are you worried? Are you doing urethral biopsies and random bladder biopsies and blue light cystose, Tim? Ureteroscopy, selective cytologies, are you going for broke here or how do you kind of synthesize that? I think post-BCG, you know, there is a role, or at least the guidelines do state the possibility of utilizing some other markers as well, such as Eurovision, FISH, and immunocyte, or, you know, even CX bladder, which everybody seems to be hot on, but we're, we are not utilizing any of these. I don't think it changes management given those, those current tests. So for, for myself, if someone has a positive cytology, you go and you biopsy, you don't find anything that's still residual, I just continue with the maintenance BCG courses at that point. I'm not doing anything extra. Eugene? Yeah, I would agree. And I, I think as you suggested, do the same sort of alluded to, I typically will take prosthetic urethral biopsies as well as selective cytologies for patients, especially if their bladder looks like there's obvious carcinoma in situ, I typically will not because those will almost always be positive and probably just contamination. I'll still probably do a sampling of the prosthetic urethra in males because I do worry for someone with diffuse CIS that, you know, there's some stuff hiding out there. So I'll do full TUR loop biopsies from five to seven at least. But as you know, just like Tim said, if the biopsies all come back negative or the prosthetic urethra is negative, I will often counsel patients that CIS by definition doesn't really adhere very well. And it's not uncommon to find denuded mucosa. So to me, if you have a positive cytology and you have denuded mucosa, it's just indicative that the, you know, the CIS cells are being shed into the urine. And I think in that situation, you know, maintenance BCG would be totally reasonable. Yeah, I agree. And I totally hear you on the biomarkers. I mean, atypical cytology, I think, is especially with like auto release of results and no context is something that's concerning for patients. And there is data on an anticipatory positive fish and so forth. But I guess ultimately, I kind of 
subscribe to the, I guess, memorial philosophy that are you going to do anything different? And the short answer is typically not, you know, whether their fish is positive or an immunocyte or a CX bladder. Okay, great. So CIS, biopsy proven, basically gets a second induction. You know, of course, if there's anything remarkably concerning that can be kind of, I guess, tailored. If it's a positive cytology without biopsy proven, continue on with maintenance. The patient could be counseled that if they're getting a second maintenance at about a 50% response rate, that sounds about spot on. So what if, you know, they've got something papillary and it's a TA high grade? Yeah, this is, you know, after BCG, I do, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I do all of these with blue light cystoscopy. Now we don't have it available in the office, but I think we're talking about already in the OR. So this is where I would do a blue light transurethral resection of a bladder tumor to ensure that I get all of that papillary tumor out and anything surrounding it. And I routinely see that there's either other tumors that were not seen on the white light cystoscopy in the office on the surveillance cysto. And so I do think there is added benefit and it's been shown as well with blue light cystoscopy. Or if you alternatively don't have that available and you utilize narrowband imaging, I think that's equally acceptable. It's sort of your enhanced cystoscopy of choice, if you will, I think are very, very important because these patients, if they're recurring already after BCG, you want to be as thorough as possible getting all of that papillary tumor out. If it's just TA high grade, you know, again, we proceed with a second induction course at this point. Eugene? Yeah, I would, I would agree with what Tim said. You know, in terms of some high quality to URBT using enhanced cystoscopy, I'm a little bit more selective in blue light in the patients that I do that in routinely, but typically we'll do narrow band imaging. Just to, in my own personal experience, out of, you know, 50 or 60 initial patients assessing blue light, you know, the clinical benefit of it, I didn't find to be any much any better than narrow band imaging. But I think, you know, with that aside, I think doing a high quality TURBT, identifying additional papillary tumors. And then once that is fully resected, then I would definitely retreat them with BCG if they have non-invasive disease. And I think that's consistent with the AUA guidelines. Yeah. Now what just for the sake of completeness, what if they have actually TA low grade? after their induction? I typically would counsel patients that I, I don't think that's a treatment failure by any accounts for BCG. You know, I typically just try to explain to them that the BCG is really good at eradicating high-grade disease and the biology of a low-grade tumor is a little bit different. And those patients, if they demonstrate that they have, you know, a low-grade recurrence, at least the initial one, I will typically post-BCG do in the operating room. But if they continue to have low-grade recurrences, which some patients do, those are things that I worry a little bit less about in terms of, you know, managing that in the office, potentially with full duration if they're they're pretty small. I always try to do a biopsy on those patients if they had, you know, a high-grade TA tumor at initial diagnosis or so. But I worry a little bit less about those patients that have these low-grade recurrences post-BCG. Yeah, the low-grade ones I'm, I'm not so worried about. And would you keep them on, on maintenance? I would, yeah, because again, I don't think that's a treatment failure. I think the BCG did its thing and eradicated the high-grade components. And then there's the T1 high-grades. So, you know, diagnostic resection, restaging resection, induction BCG, three-month cysto, papillary tumor, you resected its T1 high-grade. What does that conversation look like? If this is a situation where, you know, I'm truly worried 
uh, about these patients' concerns. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it, both the tumor characteristics, multifocal, extent of laminar appropriate involvement. Is it multifocal? Is it extensive or is it minimal invasion? You know, is there associated CIS? You know, all those tumor factors go into it, but also patient factors are very important. Is this, you know, a young and healthy male or is this a very comorbid individual that maybe not the best cystectomy candidate. So I think a lot of that goes into those discussions, whether I'm particularly worried about this patient and counseling more towards an early cystectomy, or is this a patient that probably would be better served with an additional attempt with bladder preservation, even if they're at a higher risk for progression. Right. So of course, it's not cookbook and there's patient desires, patient comorbidities, disease characteristics. So let's start out with maybe like the one end of the spectrum, nodular, multifocal, LVI, extensive, and they're willing to receive a cystectomy. To me, that's kind of a no-brainer next step. Yeah, I would agree. And LVI is so uncommon in high-grade T1. That's a patient that I'd be really worried about and potentially even counseling that, you know, they may have nodal involvement and may need systemic therapy, typically, in at least in my experience, that would be after cystectomy, verifying the pathology stage, verifying the nodes. But I know that there are some centers that sort of advocate potentially for systemic therapy, even for these very high-risk T1 patients. I don't know if that's necessarily indicated or beneficial. And I think the data is kind of weak overall on that. But you know, whenever you see a variant histology, LVI, these very high-risk features, I think definitely counseling those patients towards dissectomy. And, you know, I just, I worry we have very few effective bladder preserving options after BCG has failed. And I think it's, it's such a major unmet need and cystectomy is curative in the majority of these patients. The one other thing I'll add is, and maybe you'll get to this later, but the variant histology for these T1 high grades also puts you into that high risk category there, especially if the invasive component will our pathologist here will read it as the invasive component contains sarcomatoid or any of those other sorts of features. I mean, this is definitely concerning, certainly pushing me towards cystectomy for that patient. Yeah. So a couple of things. A, I definitely think it's a good idea to stage them. I would get a CT scan, chest, abdomen, pelvis. Personally, if they've got persistent high-grade disease, T1 high-grade disease after induction BCG, because you can have you know, lymph node metastases or so forth in that clinical setting. And by all means, Tim, you know, we, we didn't even have the kind of upfront cystectomy conversation, T1 high grade with LVI, sarcomatoid features, variant histologies, unresectable, et cetera, but totally, totally point taken. So it sounds like the preference would be cystectomy and totally agree with that. Now, what if the patient's unwilling or unfit to receive a cystectomy? What's your next kind of go-to option here? Yeah, for us, you know, with these recurrent T1 high grades after BCG, unwilling or unfit for a cystectomy, this is where you're, you're looking at other alternative options now. You know, so if they're meeting the criteria here for BCG unresponsive disease, you have a couple of different options. Our current preference at this point is the utilization of gemcitabine and docetaxel intravesically, but FDA approval currently is just for valrubicin and pembrolizumab. Yeah, I mean, comprehensively, the way I kind of think about it is we have cystectomy, we have Pembro, we've got Jim Dosey, we've got, of course, clinical trials. Valrubicin is an FDA-approved agent that I 
don't even really kind of bring into the conversation. You know, then there's the stuff that's kind of coming through the pipelines that I think is exciting. So again, or our second induction course of BCG would be, and of those, and this is an opinion, you know, in this patient with large volume recurrent T1 high grade, while I am generally a fan of Gemdosi, to me, I'm not super keen on another intravesical option necessarily, if they've got a, a lot of, you know, early recurrent tumor. And I, I would actually maybe lean towards Pembro, but I'm curious to see what you all think. So if we're talking about our like super high risk, very high risk T1 patient here, I think uh, another potential option, because this is a patient we're concerned that may have clinical understaging. So I would completely agree that I would be uncomfortable with an intravesical option in this. Although it's only been published in abstract form at this point, there is the chemo radiation potential option for some of these patients. And I do discuss that for patients that I feel that they probably do have muscle invasive disease even though clinically they're T1, and I sort of counsel them as such. So the NRG data is abstract form. Honestly, it's not that, I'm not super enthusiastic about it, but I think, you know, there's, there's robust data from muscle invasive disease. So whether your early T1 post-BCG would behave differently, I think is a little bit unknown, but I do think that that's an option for these very high-risk T1 patients for sure. For your sort of run-of-the-mill high-grade T1 with BCG unresponsive disease without, you know, significant multiple risk factors, you know, at least my belief is that we should be supporting clinical trials first. And for these high-grade T1 patients, I do think that adding that systemic component that you had mentioned, pembrolizumab, but the Keynote 057 data certainly wasn't anything to write home about. So I like these ideas for the clinical trials that are combining immune checkpoint inhibitor with an intravescal agent. The Alliance trial that's pembrolizumab plus intravescal gemcitabine, for example. And so for high-grade T1 patients, I tend to preferentially recommend that clinical trial or clinical trials like that with a systemic component, where for patients that may just have CIS or high-grade TA, BCG unresponsive disease, those may be patients that are better served with a intravescal-only treatment option and avoiding the potential, you know, immune-related adverse events with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Yeah, thanks, Eugene. That's an excellent point. I mean, I think for a variety of reasons, sometimes chemoradiation doesn't come up. I mean, case in point, I didn't even mention it, but I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. And while it's not a home run, and many of these patients are probably going to have fairly significant lower urinary tract symptoms. It may not be the best option, but point well taken. And I think, you know, this this really kind of digs into when you look into somebody's bladder, you either something goes off that says I'm worried or I'm not worried. And when you're worried, it kind of is like cystectomy, systemic therapy. And when you're not worried, you feel like you could try something, gemcitabine, docetaxel, and you're not going to you know, miss an opportunity of a window for a cure. So we talked about CIS in a second induction course of BCG, TA high grade, not concerning. Is that going to be a second induction course of BCG patient for you? Yeah, exactly. So if they've only had a single course of induction BCG with a recurrence of TA high grade, then they don't technically meet the criteria for BCG unresponsive disease yet. This is the time when I'm giving them a second induction course of BCG. Okay. So now we're looking at either the patients had a second induction course or induction plus maintenance, and they've had a high-grade recurrence, and you're, you're kind of running through it. 
what does that conversation look like with the patient? What's your spiel? Yeah, any, any amount of a high-grade recurrence after adequate BCG is certainly concerning. And I think, you know, it's never too early to start engaging in the idea of an early and timely cystectomy just to kind of put it on the table, you know, for somebody who, you know, maybe it was difficult for them to get through those, just an induction and a maintenance course of BCG, the thought of undergoing any further intravescal therapies is pretty dissuading to a patient. They're ready to just kind of get everything out. And I don't think that's unreasonable. If it's really just superficial, a single TA lesion or something like this, then, you know, now we're talking about really more second line intravesical options. And I tell them that, you know, while the first line option was BCG, and unfortunately they've had a recurrence, we have some other options available that seem to have pretty promising data. And for us, we do lean on gemcitabine and docetaxel, and we've had pretty good success with it. Our, again, it's all based on retrospective data, so we do have to take that into consideration. But at this time, these are easy drugs to get. They're cheap. And you know, in the absence of other clinical trials, which I also would get into, that's sort of our second-line therapy at the moment. Eugene? I agree with what Tim was saying. I, I think Early on, having a discussion and introducing the concept of radical cystectomy in these patients that you're worried about, I think that's pretty important. You know, I think kind of emphasizing a lot of the quality of life data that is now emerging, suggesting that patients do go on to live healthy, fulfilling lives after cystectomy. And it is at this point in time in 2022, the only real curative option after BCG fails. So I think introducing that idea early on is important. What I like about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is you tend to develop relationships with patients as they go through multiple lines of therapy, et cetera. So at least putting that sort of on the back table, so to speak, as you go through the different bladder preserving options. But my typical approach is BCG. If BCG is not working, then typically clinical trials. And if they're well, cystectomy discussion versus clinical trials and based off how worried I am about that patient and if they're not eligible or, or not excited about the clinical trial options that are available to them, then, you know, sort of our default option has also been the gemcitabine docetaxel combination as well. And I, I think I share both of your feelings that although it does seem promising, the data, the evidence is pretty weak and retrospective to support it. So I, I do worry, you know, I'm sort of heavily influenced by uh, Richard Feynman with the, uh, the quote that, you know, the first thing is not to fool yourself and we're the easiest people to fool. So I do worry that maybe this combination of gemcitabine and docetaxel may not be that much better than, you know, single agents. I think the science behind it or the combination makes sense to me. And that's what we do for metastatic and muscle invasive disease, but it, it will be nice to get some high quality data to support what we're doing clinically. Perfect. And what about Pembro? You know, FDA approved. Are you excited about it? Do you feel like it's doing something for the sake of doing something when the patient comes back with pneumonitis and colitis and their fingers have, you know, autoimmune <laughs> off? Are you like, I helped you? So I, I think I think it needs to be discussed with every patient because it is besides valrubicin, which you know isn't really that readily available. It is the only FDA-approved drug. I think, at least in my practice, it always comes up in a discussion, mostly as an option 
But because we have the availability to enroll on clinical trials with a component that has intravesical gemcitabine, I do send my patients with BCG on responsive disease to meet with the medical oncologist and they'll discuss pembrolizumab as a monotherapy. Very rarely does a patient actually opt to go on that, but it's more for the discussion of pembrolizumab within the context of a clinical trial or any immune checkpoint inhibitor within the context of a clinical trial. But I think, you know, the data isn't very compelling. It's great that it was FDA approved, but, you know, it's a 40% response rate at three months and, you know, beyond 12, 18 months or so, only about 20% of patients remain disease-free. So I have a slide with a table on it that basically has like the expected response rates for the various options that are available to patients. And, you know, most patients or many patients will even decline meeting with the medical oncologist because neither one of us is very enthused about the potential results with Pembrose and monotherapy. Yeah, we, I always thought our medical oncologists are not <laughs> very eager to be giving pembrolizumab to a lot of these patients as well for the associated toxicities. And they're actually pretty strict about it too. You know, the FDA approval was only in the, in the keynote 057 publication that's thus far been published has only been in CIS disease with or without papillary disease, concomitant papillary disease. So they're pretty strict about which patients they would even consider giving pembrolizumab to because of the fact that uh, only about 20% had that clinical response or complete response beyond 12 months. So it doesn't even really meet some of the prior goals of the FDA as far as complete responses at 12 months. I think there would be a little bit more enthusiasm if there was a biomarker-driven approach to this. I think the unselected patients, not the risk-benefit trade-offs between these immune-related adverse events and the sort of marginal benefit that patients receive. I think, you know, the math, unfortunately, isn't in the favor of treating many of these patients. But if there was a, a biomarker to select these patients, I think that would definitely be very beneficial. But unfortunately, you know, the publication, PD-1, PD-L1 staining wasn't beneficial, wasn't, wasn't helpful. So hopefully there is some work ongoing from the result from the Keynote 057 cohort and other work is ongoing. But until that happens, I think there's going to be a lack of enthusiasm, you know, as a urology community, at least. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, at this point, I'll typically start looking into things like tumor sequencing when I'm getting worried. And, you know, we can certainly envision a day where altered patients would go on to something like Ertafitinib. And, you know, it's exciting, right? It's exciting that over the course of our careers, and we're not like a thousand years old, we've seen kind of these new changes, new options. I mean, I remember being at like a dinner during residence with the Valstar people and just being like, oh my gosh, like I wouldn't even off this. It's so, <laughs> right, you know, right. disappointing, like a 10% response rate. And, you know, at least we have some other options now. So, you know, obviously what well, we're coming on about an hour, it's been an amazing conversation. Clinical trials have come up and I don't think we're able to kind of comprehensively run through all of them. Eugene's mentioned kind of IO intravesical therapies, which I think are exciting. There's novel treatments, I mean, in Stiladrin and things along those lines. There's the devices. Maybe I could just ask both of you all to kind of share a couple of thoughts on what you're excited about. You're right. I mean, there's there's so many options kind of coming down the pipeline. You know, there's even Vincinium, of course, which I think failed to get FDA approval now with Edstiladrin coming on. And I think they're seeking FDA approval. So there's so many agents that are looking to advance in this space. I do think that there's a lot of excitement or renewed excitement, maybe is the idea of 
some of the agents that you can put into the bladder. You know, the pretzel, I think, was popularized for a while there and kind of coming back online. But, you know, there's just so many different agents. So I'll be interested to see sort of what ultimately wins out. And I, to echo some of what uh, Eugene said as well, is I think the biomarker driven strategy, whether it's a urinary based assay or if it's truly tissue based, both would be exciting as far as sort of helping guide maybe a little bit more precision-based treatment options for a lot of these patients. Because I, I think there is a heterogeneous mix, even in the non-muscle invasive space. Perfect. What do you think, Eugene? Yeah, I mean, you know, we kind of run through the clinical trials that bubble up into our own thoughts and, you know, gel mito in the bladder. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are out there that are kind of being purposed and repurposed, as, as you've mentioned. Have you ever heard of a CD20 agonist? This is the Eugene, uh, this is the Bernie Bachner trial. Okay. Yeah, it's anti-CD40. It's out of Rockefeller. It's a clinical trial that we're running in the phase one. I mean, the preclinical data looks very promising, but I agree with both of you in terms of, you know, there's a lot of things coming down the pipeline. And I, I think that is exciting, but it also presents challenges to us as a community as well. I think, you know, when you have almost an, a limitless number of agents and potential combinations, I think we as a community need to be like thoughtful how we're going to do this. I think it's, you know, it's important to generate high quality data that we could potentially assess. And I, I completely agree with the idea that, you know, some of this or a lot of this should be biomarker driven within high grade T1, within CIS, et cetera. That there's a lot of tremendous heterogeneity in terms of the biology of the tumors themselves. So I, I think there's only a limited number of patients, uh, certainly those that are going to be enrolling on clinical trials. So I think some of these larger, more ambitious trials, unfortunately, are closing because, you know, failure to accrue. So I think we need to be pretty thoughtful in how, how we develop these clinical trials or assess these drugs or combinations more quickly and more accurately, whether that's, you know, a urine-based approach using, you know, urinary tumor DNA, et cetera, or whatever it may be. But, you know, get an idea, is this drug or this combination promising or not? Or is the toxicity acceptable because some of these systemic therapies are acceptable and patients with metastatic disease are going to be very willing to accept some of these toxicities. But someone with non-Muslim invasive disease, when cystectomy is curative for these patients, you know, they're going to be less tolerant of a lot of, you know, some of these immune adverse events like we have been discussing. So I think moving forward, being able to rapidly assess these drugs and combinations is going to be even more important. I think in terms of therapies that should be readily available in, in the near future, I think the N803 combination with BCG, that data looks fairly promising. Maybe this is just the skeptic in me in total. You know, you, you got to wonder since BCG on responsive disease is just based off expert opinion, we actually don't know how the BCG alone would perform in some of these patients. I think some of these patients may derive benefit from BCG, not suggesting that they receive it, but I wonder how much of that efficacy we're seeing is from the actual IL-15 superagonist versus from the BCG retreatment. So not to end on sort of a, a down note, but you know, I think a lot of that data may be generated in this BCG naive trial that they're running comparing this combination versus BCG. Yeah. I think you brought up a good point, which is that as we're looking at 
all of these trials that are coming down the line, ultimately we'll have to compare them head to head, right? We keep using these tables and looking at response rates at three and 12 months. I mean, we have to actually compare these head to head ultimately in sort of better trial designs ultimately. So I, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I think BCG on responsive criteria is very helpful in sort of building some momentum to these single arm trials and coming up with things to potentially test. But yeah, cross trial comparisons are fraught with a lot of issues. I also do, again, not to end this on a downer, but I also do worry that like some of the data that we're seeing may be, you know, more of a natural history type of situation with BCG on responsive disease. The fact that in Stiladrin, the fact that Pembro, Vincinium, et cetera, we're seeing like a 40 to 50% initial response rate. And then, you know, it seems to all drop down to about 20%, you know, beyond 12, 18 months or so. That has me a little bit worried. Some of that may be, you know, therapeutic effect from TUR, as I sort of suggested, I'm a believer in that. But that's why I think the N803 plus BCG data, that seems more promising. So maybe there is a little bit more activity there than than elsewhere. But I agree 100% that the only way to know that is to compare some of these agents head to head. It's just if you were a patient or for your own patients, like, would you really want to be randomized to pembrolizumab? And I think investigator choice randomization is also a little bit challenging or presents some challenges. Now, I actually don't interpret any of this as being overly skeptical or negative or pessimistic. I think you know, what I'm kind of hearing here is we have to remember that BCG unresponsive disease is a dangerous clinical state. And what we don't want to have is a litany of options where it's like, here's first line, here's second line, here's third line, here's fourth line, here's fifth line. And that's an accepted way to think about it. And you miss an opportunity of a window for a cure because you've kind of let things go that, you know, we, we've had this discussion, you know, when you're worried and when you're not worried and, and how that kind of frames it. But just because there may be six different FDA approved options, it doesn't mean that they're going to sequentially continue to work or that you may miss an opportunity of a window for a cure if you continue messing around with either intravesical or systemic options. But personally, it's been really, really fantastic to see the work you guys have done to help us understand some of the molecular features of these tumors. I mean, you're leading clinical trials. You've been thought leaders, and, and I've certainly learned learned a ton. So thanks for your time. It's been amazing catching up and picking your brains. I, th I think the future is bright. Thanks so much, Aditya. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.